I think that there are certain times where you want to check the boxes, maybe build a brand. But at some point in time, you have to think a little bit more outside of that box for sure. If you're going to try to reach up to that kind of full potential of, of taking risks in innovative environments and truly testing yourself. Hey everyone, this is Jay. And this is Angie. And welcome to another episode of Across the Lines, a place where we have candid and vulnerable conversations with Pan-Asian American leaders about identity, work, and the confluence of the two. Join us on a journey to amplify their voices, humanize their achievements, and share their wisdom. Whether you're looking for advice or just want to hear leaders who've been there and done that share their personal and professional stories, you've come to the right place. Today, we're excited to speak with Dan Yu. Dan is a former VP of Business and Data at Coinbase. Prior to Coinbase, Dan created LinkedIn's business operations function and popularized BizOps across the valley. He also served as a COO of NerdWallet and founded and successfully exited ReliaQuote, an online insurance brokerage. In this episode, we speak with Dan about his recent decision to leave Coinbase after the company announced its apolitical stance, why going through your career just checking the boxes may actually limit your growth, and the role Asian Americans play in diversity, equity, and inclusion conversations in the workplace. Dan, thanks for coming on. You know, one of the questions that we like to start off with, which has given us a wide variety of answers, is what your favorite dish was growing up. So what was that for you, Dan? Yeah, I think it was uh, something called a tosot bibimbap. It's like a stone rice bowl. It's heated to about 500 degrees. So you have like a little bit of the rice that's uh, a little bit like paella style. And then there's like a bunch of rice. There's, you know, a bunch of vegetables in there mixed with like a spicy Korean sauce. And I, yeah, I love that growing up. I, I, and you, you could put like, you know, your proteins or your meats on that. And I really like kalbi as well, but it kind of had all the carbs, the like kind of Korean taste as well as the kalbi. And ultimately, that uh, that dish is kind of what inspired uh, a restaurant that I ran for nine years. I, I wouldn't say I ran it. I would say I was, was a partner in it with one of your other guests, Robbie Kwok. But uh, we ran it for nine plus years. And we got the name Stone Korean Kitchen, largely from kind of that stone rice bowl. And that, in fact, was our signature dish that we had. So where where was that restaurant? And is it in yeah. San Francisco? Because I may have been to that restaurant. Is it on the Visadero by any chance? Uh, it's in Embarcadero. So it was in Embarcadero 4, you know, right across the ferry building. It's still there. It's run by um, a person we sold the restaurant to, you know, back a couple of years back. Um, but yeah, and it's still called Stone Korean Kitchen. So the quintessential question, Dan, the most important question we'll ask for the entire podcast is galbi or bulgogi? Oh, definitely galbi. Yeah, yeah? you got to get something <laughs> close to the meat. Yeah, for, the, for that flavor, for sure. All right. It's been settled once and for all. Absolutely. 100%. <laughs> all the way. It wasn't even a question. Oh, man. <laughs> Yeah, slam dunk Kalbi for sure. Would you say growing up, there was a lot of Korean influence in your upbringing in terms of the values that you're brought up with, the the environment that you grew up in? And I want to tie this a bit into something that you brought up before, which is your self-proclaimed tiger dad title, <laughs> especially during COVID. And tying that into your upbringing and how some of what you were imbued with when you're growing up has translated into your own philosophy now that you're a parent. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, th I think it's uh, pretty typical in terms of uh, like kind of a Korean or Asian upbringing. You know, my parents emphasized uh, education a lot, uh, emphasized, you know, trying to achieve 
like things with activities. And so, you know, I played the violin. I was terrible at the violin, but I, I played it and I had like zero talent in it, but, uh, you know, played it until, you know, through throughout high school. So when I was like five years old throughout high school. So that's kind of a typical Asian type thing, Asian activity. Uh, but my parents also uh, like really emphasized just being well-rounded and trying to take leadership roles, you know, in school and activities. And they, you know, put a lot of emphasis on that and help support me and drive, drive me to all, all kind of those activities throughout like junior high and high school. And so, yeah, I think that that, that definitely has an influence, but it's a, it's a little bit of a stereotypical upbringing. I try to be good at math, you know, yeah, I try to get ahead in math by, you know, a couple of grades or whatnot. So yeah, absolutely. And I think that, yeah, it, it influences me as a parent as well. Like I, I definitely want my kids to have like a well-rounded upbringing um, not just academically focused, but certainly that, but I've, I've stepped it up a notch. Like right now I'm not working before Coinbase. I wasn't working for two and a half years. And so, and my kids right now are 10 and eight. And so I really tell people like I biz ops my kids at home. Like, uh, I'm looking for like that week to week incremental improvement. Uh, I measure everything, you know, my, my kid has a huge whiteboard up there where he keeps like all of his stats of free throw shooting and the percentages and trying to get, you know, uh, step level function improvements, you know, every, you know, couple of months or so. And so, you know, I think the, the crazy thing about parenting is like, you just have no idea where your, your kids are like from, uh, like, should they know this or should they not know this? But you, you automatically feel like they should know everything, like everything that you do as like me, a 43 year old, I'm like, shouldn't they know how to jump rope? Like, why can't they jump rope? And so then you get maniacal, you know, I got maniacal about that. Or why can't they do this like simple arithmetic? You know, what's up with these multiplication tables? Like they should know that, that this already. And so I think that, you know, not having a frame of reference on where kids are at and just coming in from the work world, like you just go into full tiger dad mode. And so I am certainly deserving of that title, I think, in terms of how I hover around my kids, but you could ask them. Maybe we can bring them on the podcast next or something. <laughs> is that, Dan, Dan, is, did the, the tiger parenting from your, from your own parents, is that what led you to become class president in high school four years in a row? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, uh, how, how the heck did that happen? And and was was there no one else running, or was it just you running a great campaign every year? Like, how did that work out? Uh, uh, I, I guess you must have picked that up on the, my LinkedIn profile. I should get that off. Uh, it's uh, get, get, getting way back into history. Yeah, I mean, I I, I don't know if it's a tiger parenting because you know I think my parents were particularly my mom was a little bit different in that way in which she kind of wanted to encourage like just general leadership around things. And, you know, I think I had just a little bit of an inclination for that. Yeah, she was just always supportive. And uh, I first ran as like my school president in eighth grade. So if you extend that even further, it kind of started there. And I had like a campaign poster. It says like, I want you. And it was like an Uncle Sam, but he was like Asian. And he was kind of, I want you for president. And so that was, that was my theme back in the day. That was the least embarrassing one. The actual speech was like uh, Rob Bass. There was like, it takes you or it takes two. But I, you know, I had, it takes you. And then we did like a little dance to that or whatever. So very, quite embarrassing. But I think that at a probably early age, I, you know, want to put myself out there. I really loved people working with teams and just doing everything that, you know, as best as you possibly could. And my leadership philosophy was if you're elected or if you're, if you're entrusted to be a leader, you should be a leader better than anyone else has done it before. Otherwise, like the replacement value of yourself was nothing. And so like the, the value that you were bringing is, you know, how much better could you do something? And so from a kind of early age, 
that kind of continuous improvement mindset was uh, was imbued by me. Certainly kind of, uh, if you will, like Asian values in that. But yeah, they were very, my parents were very supportive at an early age. And we'll see if my, any of my kids had that inclination, but I, I would certainly be supportive. Looping back in uh, to your own children, I'm curious how, how you grew up is now different than the world that your children are growing up. We touched on briefly in the past about maybe the differences in pressure that your generation, generations uh, before then versus your children's generation may have it a little bit more difficult when it comes to high school and applying for colleges and, and some of the added stress that would come on to those children. I'd love if you could share a little bit more about your perspective regarding the, the, the differences between the two. Yeah, I think it is far more competitive today than it was when I was growing up. So I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago in a, you know, my, my high school was Glenbrook North. I don't know if you've ever seen like Ferris Bueller's Day Off, but where he picks up his uh, girlfriend uh, that was my, and zooms out of school. That was my high school, like Home Alone, Breakfast Club. Those were all based kind of on the area I grew up. But growing up here, particularly, I think in the Bay Area, there is a certain level of intensity. And I think it's because you have a lot of first, sec second generation families that are putting a huge importance on education and achievement. And that can get pushed to a, an extreme. I think, you know, I, I certainly see, you know, at times, uh, even myself, like, you know, I, I observe my kid's schedule, and it is certainly far more packed than mine was as a second and fourth grader. And so, I mean, second and fourth graders, like, I remember myself back then, I was a complete blob. I was like looking up at the sky, rolling around in the, in the grass. And, uh, you know, I had these folks, like my kiddos, like doing like physical training, like push-ups, sit-ups, like basketball, like, you know, piano, kumon. So their entire like day is like kind of intensely packed. And the crazy thing is like the parents, you know, that we're friends with and around us are, are doing largely the same things. And so, yeah, I do think that that has a, a certain impact and, you know, cognizant that you certainly want your kids to have a little bit more of a well-rounded, you know, uh, childhood, I think. Um, and and it's, it's tough when you're trying to always keep up with what you're hearing the latest parents are doing from an education standpoint, from a math standpoint, from a activity standpoint. And you can get caught up in that for sure. That last point you brought up there was so interesting because I think there's such a strong undercurrent here of your quote unquote traditional Asian upbringing, right? Which in my case, at least was very comparative, very, hey, here's a threshold and it's like Mr. Chan's son, <laughs> you know, mm. that's like the gold standard. And what I'm hearing from you is that almost carries over into you as an adult now, and it's almost like a whole new cycle where how your kids perform and how they navigate the world is a reflection on you almost. Tell us a bit about that. I think it's definitely true. It's like uh, just this achievement and being checkboxers, you know, like checking the box for all these things is very much ingrained. And I think there's a lot of positives to it, but there are also a lot of negatives. And I think that, you know, fundamentally, we want our kids to be, you know, have a growth mindset. And we want them to like enjoy achievement, but it's certainly, I think in today's environment, like we, we're all like checking boxes and there's a certain intensity to checking those boxes. And I think some of the unintended consequences is that you don't focus on the things like creativity or innovative mindset around things, or uh, just kind of the joy of learning. And those are things I kind of struggle with at times because, you know, I do want them to understand what the grind is. 
you know, I, I mentioned like I played the violin, I was terrible, but I grinded away at it, you know, and uh, there are some lessons learned to, you know, in something that you're not great at or talented at that you could still grind away and, and have some level of achievement. And I think that that's a very important part. Um, it's kind of the book like grit and, you know, having that grit, I think is super important. But at the same time, I think it can be overdone. And, you know, we, we are seeing some of the impacts of people kind of just checking the boxes and going along, even in adult life, uh, achievement to achievement. Uh, so I'm sure you and Jay have achieved tons of great things already. And yet you're thinking about the next boxes to check, you know, whether that's an MBA or whether that's, you know, next step at LinkedIn or, you know, from a career perspective. And I think that could start pushing us over into limiting our potential and what we can achieve, particularly in a world that's changing so dynamically with technology these days. This idea of being very achievement driven and going through life, checking the box, a couple things on here. One, it reminds me of this book. I highly recommend it's called excellent sheep Mm. the subtitle is something around the lines of like the miseducation of the american elite or something obnoxious like that but the premise of the book is really good because it basically outlines how through your entire life there's these hoops that are placed in front of you and you're conditioned almost as a high achiever through your upbringing to be jumping through the next hoop and the next hoop and the next hoop and for me at least there's been a bit of I'd say like disorientation the past couple of years that I'm starting to see a bit of clarity in where I jump through that final hoop of graduating through college and getting that like, you know, nice job. And then I'm like, what's the next one, you know, and mm-hmm. having to craft that hoop for yourself. And I'm curious for you, Dan, throwing it back to, you know, when you were in college, when you just graduated and you just started your career, how do you feel like this kind of checkboxing and achievement focus manifested for you? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think I had a really interesting choice to make. So I, I had founded my uh, probably, I mean, aside from the restaurant, the only company that I founded was this company, ReliaQuote, which was the first company in fintech before it was, you know, there was fintech. It was a, a life insurance brokerage online. And so that was in 1998, 97, 98, when I was at Georgetown in college. And I had a, uh, I had a choice in 99 when I graduated. Should I stay with ReliaQuote or should I get, you know, take this job at, at Merrill Lynch's tech investment banking group? And I, I'm not saying it was a bad choice to make, but it was a, you know, the choice to go to something that your parents like had heard of. They had heard of Merrill Lynch. They had kind of heard of investment banking. Um, and they had certainly heard of, you know, in the Korean newspapers, these like tech companies going public. <laughs> and so I had been doing the startup rely quote for the last two years while I was at, you know, my junior and senior year of, of Georgetown. And so I had this choice and I decided to check the box, like yet another kind of badge to, you know, go to Merrill Lynch's tech investment banking group. Now I'm glad I made that decision. It's where I met, you know, some folks that had, uh, including Robbie Kwok, uh, you know, guest of yours, where he was a year above me and th- you know, he's had a tremendous impact on my career in terms of having introduced me to Jeff Weiner and the folks at LinkedIn. And that was like the kind of career defining role there for me. And, and ReliQuote ultimately did, I did end up going back and it, it, it did end up being, you know, a successful company. Uh, it was bought out by Fiserv back uh, in 2001. But at the same time, it was, it's like, you know, I was faced with this real option to be an entrepreneur very early on in, in a company that was like gaining momentum. So we were a Forbes favorite. It was uh, when Forbes had a magazine to show you what websites to go to. It seems so insane. 
and, and you know, didn't make the decision to stay there. It, you know, made the decision to go, you know, check a box. And I think in a lot of ways, it, it became more and more expensive not to check that box. You know, I think that you kind of continue down that path with that mentality. But in, in, in a certain way, I think that there are certain times where you want to check the boxes, maybe build a brand. But at some point in time, you have to think a little bit more outside of that box for sure. If you're going to try to reach up to that kind of full potential of, of taking risks in innovative environments and truly testing yourself. And I love this point. There's someone maybe I think you work with at Coinbase or maybe, maybe you uh, didn't cross paths. Uh, his name is Balaji Srivanasan. Mm-hmm. No, about. but I know, but I, I, I've met Balaji only once and I follow him on Twitter. So yeah, uh, he is a character uh, on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. But pe- people so say, people at Coinbase say he's literally like a, the, the fastest idea generation person they've ever met. Yeah. 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 And, and one of these ideas uh, that he's been speaking about uh, even as back as like 2013 is this idea of ex- exiting current forms of structure in society and and one of the things that he mentions is like exiting the conventional career path and so before you know you would just follow the norms check the boxes become an accountant become a lawyer maybe become a doctor etc and what what we're talking about right now of not just doing things to check boxes and potentially to do things that are i don't know more of your interest or where you see the world going is something i wanted to ask you about and, and, and I'm, I'm thinking about this myself of how does the future of technology, especially how quickly it's adapting these days, end up impacting very practically how we think about our career and how we think about our lives and, and just checking these boxes. Because I'm worried for myself and for my friends that if we continue to check the boxes, then we're going to completely miss um, new opportunities that are coming up specifically because of technology. I'd love to just hear your perspective on it if you've thought about it at all and, and how, how adapting technology ends up impacting the trade-off of actually following these checkboxes. You know, it, particularly when I see crypto and what's happening now in crypto, I do very much feel like it has, it's probably a little bit earlier stage than when I entered into tech in 97 uh, with ReliQuote. And there I just see just tons of opportunity and nobody you know, technology or solutions or products and how they're experienced by consumers, they don't know what degree you got. They don't even know if you got a degree, you know, if you created something that's useful in the world. And certainly with decentralization that's happening through crypto and through blockchain, there's so many different areas where if you just wanted to explore and you had curiosity and you want to go down even the particular rabbit hole, uh, even just as an investor, of seeing what kind of opportunities are out there. Like those are, there, there's a lot more that's happening that's on a decentralized basis. I mean, some of the other areas I see that's in is like content. So you have like Joe Rogan, or you have some of these folks like building a brand themselves and speaking directly to their user bases. And, you know, I think that that's also speak to the fact that there's like this decentralization that's going on. I think that the boxes that you check are gonna be more correlation than causation. So it's going to be like, well, you got a bunch of, you know, smart people. They're always going to go through institutions like Harvard or Stanford or in the job world, like the Facebooks, LinkedIn's of the world or the Googles of the world. But ultimately there's so much opportunity to create and build things and see how that technology will adapt and be better for the world that you don't need a formalized checkboxing curriculum to go through in order to achieve that. And so I, 
I, I think that, that the world is floating that way. It's going to happen slowly. I mean, these institutions are, you know, they have great brands and they often use that kind of correlation to imply causation. But I think as data-driven folks, we understand that's not always the case. And, and certainly people more and more so are being just based on the merit of their own creativity and intelligence and their skill set that they have. Like a true biz ops person, you never assume that correlation is causation. It, so. Absolutely. <laughs> Very <Yeah>. well said. <laughs> Dan, something that I've appreciated from this podcast, as well as a couple conversations before, is your ability to express your voice, whether it was looping back all the way when you were a class president in high school and creating all these amazing brand uh, campaigns about about it's it's me and you. Like I, I love that, and so maybe a lot of that ability to speak your voice started to come from there and and, and clearly has progressed um, for you. Looping a little bit back into Coinbase, I, I wanted to kind of tee up a big decision that you recently made. And I'm going to read uh, what you posted on LinkedIn and would love to kind of hear, um, you know, w- what the context of that was, why you ended up making that decision, and I guess maybe some of the lessons that you've learned. Um, so, you know, this this LinkedIn this LinkedIn post was, in the, light of, in the light of the decision the company was asked to make by October 7th, I have decided to leave Coinbase. I've agreed to stay on to help and manage the transition through the end of the year as necessary. That was three months ago. It's now January 14th. You've left Coinbase now. I would love to hear a little bit more about that and, and kind of what you've taken away from it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it wasn't an easy decision to leave, you know, the various teams I was running. You know, certainly all the biz- business teams, business operations, business development, corporate development our ventures team, our international team, our data team, our marketing team. And so there was a lot of lot of folks that kind of rolled up under my domain there as a leader and fantastic people, fantastic talent doing things that are in an amazing industry and, and a very innovative company. And I and, uh, respect Brian Armstrong, the leaders there for everything that they're trying to achieve. I think from a utility basis, like it could be the most consequential company over the next kind of 10, 20 years. The particular decision we were asked to make uh, was due to a blog post that was put out on having an apolitical stance. And rewinding back a little bit, you know, I, I originally took a strong stance within, internally within the company during Black Lives Matters, where, you know, I viewed it, you know, more than just this moment in time, but an obligation for companies to step up and, you know, help contribute to a, a better workforce and a w- better environment for particularly Black employees, but all underrepresented minorities. And, you know, I think that I actually agree with a lot of the goals that uh, the company is trying to achieve. I think it's a good goal to want to make sure that employee activism, you know, has a place, but probably is not like the main focus of an exec team or that you know puts the exec team in in these kind of periods of time where they have to pay their full attention on like an activist employee base. And so I think that that's a really tough thing as an executive and as like a leader of, of an organization to try to achieve the goals and objectives over the long run. And so I understood what the goals were, but I think in today's environment, like the, and this is more broadly speaking, there are groups and particularly underrepresented groups in the company that have their identities as, as kind of politicized. And there are existential moments for your employee base. And uh, when those existential moments kind of pop up, I think that you know, it's an obligation for the company to make sure that their employees are well taken care of in those, in those moments. And 
certainly I think that Coinbase wants to do that, but I think that there are there are things that were asked of us that I couldn't disagree and commit to. And so fundamentally we were asked to, you know, have a position and, you know, I wanted to make sure that my network and the folks that I work with understood like where I fell out, where that line was drawn in the sand. Dan, zooming out a bit more broadly and in a historical context too, you made the, you brought up this phrase of identities being politicized and for Asian Americans in history, our identities have been politicized, but not in a direct way, but almost as a wedge against other minority groups. And I think this begs a question now that we are Asian Americans in the workplace of how we navigate that, that intersection of us being Asian American and our role in civic life and our obligations as Asian American professionals in the workplace. And I think that's such a big question, and I'm sure you've thought about it really thoroughly in your decision. Could you walk us through a bit of your thinking around that? Yeah, I, I think maybe setting a little bit of context, you know, a- Asians are a significant part of the tech workforce. So, you know, if you look at like Google's diversity data, it's something like it's a plurality, but it's almost a majority. It's like 48% of their workforce is Asian, and that's up from 43% the, the prior year. So it's it is a plurality even within within Google. I mean, I think that whites are the second largest group and they represent 43%. If you look at like Salesforce's data, just their tech workers in the US, 39% of them are Asian. And so, you know, it it, it does, you know, there is a certain level of, of, and certainly with like a broad group like that, there's not gonna be like some monolithic viewpoint. There's going to be diverse viewpoints in, 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 in that entire, entire group. But I think it's important for, you know, when a, when a group is the plurality to think about what their place in this conversation is going to be. And so just from a data standpoint, like those are just really interesting numbers. And so this is, this is a trend in particular in, in, in the tech workforce. And, and so with that context, clearly the model minority stereotype is something that has been used as, like you said, as a wedge and maybe particularly against, you know, the black population as a whole, as in, you know, this, the simplistic statement of saying, well, here are folks who have come over or here are folks that have, you know, worked hard or like put a premium on education and their outcomes as a group of people are different. The, the, the most kind of impactful conversation I had around this was with an old coworker of mine. So uh, this coworker, John Russ, I work with him at NerdWallet and I work with him at Coinbase. In fact, I recruited him to Coinbase to run a marketing team there. John Russ is a black man. He grew up half a mile away from where George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis. John Russ was there during the protests uh, over the summer in Minneapolis. And so he wrote a really interesting piece and it's, it's up on Medium. It may even be on his LinkedIn profile, but it was entitled like, Dear uh, Parentheses, Well-Intentioned White People. And he, he's a marketer and John is actually a fantastic brand marketer. And he thinks about brand all the time. And what he, what he was writing in there and we, we discussed is that uh, brand is a cognitive shortcut. And that cognitive shortcut uh, is needed because we are faced with thousands of decisions every day. And fundamentally, the brands help us make those decisions. And the brand of Blackness is very different, and it's on a completely different end of the spectrum than kind of the model minority stereotype that you know Asians have. And so thinking about 
being on the different ends of the spectrum and how that impacts people's experiences, particularly in tech. And so on one extreme, you have, oh, Asians are good at math. Well, th that's actually a very positive stereotype in the tech world when a lot of things are analytical or mathematically oriented, where the brand of blackness hasn't been that. And so you could kind of extrapolate then like two very different experiences in tech or in the communities out here. And I do believe that fundamentally I as a leader or uh, uh, I as an Asian leader or Asians as a group should actually recognize that and understand like the role that they want to play with, with those fact patterns that are emerging around that. I, I do think that there's like a level of responsibility that we have to play understanding uh, that it isn't essentially a level playing field. And, you know, what is our responsibility to drive equality and equity in those conversations, I think is very important. Thank you so much for bringing that up, Dan. One thing that I'm, I'm very passionate about within this podcast and bringing on guests like yourself is, and, and maybe this is my own experience, but it's something that I know close friends of mine have experienced too, specifically within the Asian American community, which is a lot of the times uh, we don't necessarily talk about identity and race and culture. It, you know, it may be something to do with like having immigrant parents come here and just telling us to work hard and not put our head down and not necessarily look up and see what are the other things happening in the world or whatever it is. I don't, I can't pin it down, honestly. And I'm hoping through this podcast, the opposite could occur is you have Asian Americans that are listening to this that may not have thought about this before and that can. And then once they do, they can look out and be like, I wonder what ha what's happening with other cultures and with other people and maybe how can I help them and be like, we're, we're, we're going through different issues, but a lot of us are going through similar ones and we can help each other. So thank you so much for sharing that perspective. And as we wrap up, I'm wondering what are some of the things that you did really well when you started your career that you can share with some of our listeners and audience? I, I often tell people like always do your best work when, wherever you are, because uh, that'll start paying dividends, you know, subsequent in your career. I, the, the amount of uh, back channel checks I get on people that I've worked with historically or at LinkedIn is like, it, it's pretty crazy. And even for me, you're always trying to do my best work. You know, you never know how that's going to play out. So I, you know, in, in investment banking, you know, I try to work, you know, 100, 120 hour weeks, like constantly. And, you know, a guy, Robbie Kwok, like I said, again, like he noticed, like I'm putting in the time and effort. And so he, as you know, a mentor during that time certainly contributed back to my development. Robbie eventually hired Emily Choi at Yahoo, who became a colleague of mine and then ultimately my boss at Coinbase. And so here are all these opportunities and times where your reputation, how you work with folks kind of pays itself back in terms of the opportunities that are presented to folks. You know, to me, it's like you always do your best work, even super early in your career, because that's the reputation that you're going to have with those individuals that you work with. And ultimately, those are the individuals that get you subsequent opportunities uh, and access to great people. And so, yeah, always, always kind of do your best work. I think that that's like the key. Uh, again, a very, probably a, like a very good Confucian or, or Asian value, if you will, but uh, I have certainly seen that play out. And it's so true, right? Like what goes around comes around is mm -hmm. the proverbial saying, which ties into, I guess, a little bit of this origin story of how we brought you on too, and our positions at LinkedIn right now, right? We talked to Robbie, Scott introduced us to you, mm -hmm. Robbie knows you, Emily used to lead my team, everything's connected and it's such a small world. 
And it's honestly so great to just feel like you're still, you're part of like a community that's larger, whether that's like the LinkedIn community, the Asian American community, the VizOps Corp Dev community that all totally. you know, worked, <laughs> worked at the same places. But Dan, yeah. thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on today. This was such an important conversation and also such a fun one and an enlightening one too. So really appreciate it. Really appreciate you having me. It's been uh, great chatting with you both. Thanks so much for tuning into Cross the Lines with your hosts, Angie and Jay. If you enjoyed today's conversation about the intersection of work and Asian American identity, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to spread the word. We'd really appreciate it. And as always, you can head over to acrossthelinespodcast.com to learn more about the show, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. That's all for this episode, folks. See you next time. Thank you.